All right, thanks again, guys. Good morning, everyone. Again, <laughs> if you came in late, uh, my name's Chris. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're, um, as Emily said, too glad you guys are with us today. If it's your first Sunday especially, uh, thanks for checking us out and being here today for one of our gatherings. And if, uh, if you're coming back uh, for the second or thousandth time or whatever, uh, welcome back to you guys. Um, we are in a sermon series right now in the book of Galatians, so if you want to turn there in your Bibles, if you know where, where that is, uh, towards the end of the Bible, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, and then Galatians comes right after that, and then Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians after that. So just kind of for your bearings, if you're looking around uh, for it, those a lot of us will be on screen here in, in a second. Um, we're in chapter three of a six-chapter book. It'll take us through mid-December, so we're approaching midway here uh, quite quickly, uh, making some good, um, some good headway. Uh, by means of recap, this is a book essentially about Jesus. It was written to an historical kind of group of churches in Galatia. So Galatia was a Roman province of the day. Uh, for your geographical bearings, think like modern-day Turkey, uh, north of Galilee and Judea, where Jesus spent most of his life and his ministry and ultimately died in Jerusalem, which was a part of the, kind of the capital and center of Judea, south um, of the Sea of Galilee and so forth. So just think north, Gentile territory. So when you see the, the word Gentiles in the, in the Bible, think non-Jewish people uh, who are being grafted in or brought into the family of God, whereas in the Old Testament, that just wasn't really a thing. It was kind of possible by conversion, but not really. Uh, it's quite complicated, so we'll talk a little bit about that throughout the series, uh, kind of intersperse some things that might help a bit. Um, but just understand that this is exciting times in the first century. The Apostle Paul writes to this group of churches primarily composed of non-Jewish people. Uh, he himself is a Jew, a Jewish Christian, writing on this very equal level now with people who formerly were kept apart from, from them and people that they, they, they as Jewish people would have just deemed unclean and, and untouchable, can't eat with them, can't hang out, and their separation from God is more pronounced than even the Jews and so forth. And all that's giving way to a better way. So, so God has been at work in the world all the way throughout history. Uh, there's been times of separation for various reasons and so forth. Uh, sin has separated us from God on a widespread holistic level. And the Jews kind of accentuate that with how they sin, but how God stays committed to them, but how they are separated from, from him nonetheless by their constant rebellion. But really just a paradigm and this you know, example of where the world was uh, as well, kind of watching into what God, how God was covenanting with them, with them there. So, so Galatia, anyway, is, it's a book written, it's about, about Christ. It's a, a book written to this group of Galatian churches in the first century, late 40s A.D., kind of for context there as well. Shortly before this, the Apostle Paul went and had this missionary journey through the region, preached the gospel, people were converted, baptized, raised up as leaders, and so there's this, there's this full-fledged church now, and churches, series of churches in this region, but they very quickly, and this is the context and the occasion, very quickly have abandoned kind of their first love. They've added to the gospel, and by adding, they've kind of thrown the whole thing out. So Paul hears about this from afar, he's not there anymore, hears about it, writes back to them probably within a year or two after these groups of churches were planted. Uh, they're listening to false teaching. So if there's an occasion besides this is just about Christ, uh, the, the occasion is it addresses, the book does, false teaching on multiple levels. So kind of statement-wise or prepositionally we call it or narratively, which is kind of cool because a lot of the letters in the New Testament don't talk in, in narrative form, but Paul's been sharing about his own story and these Jewish apostles' stories and how they've kind of corroborated a bit and, and agreed that it's by grace we're saved, not by works. And, and he's going to bring the Galatians' story, the narrative of that, their testimony into this uh, today. 
here a little bit as well. So he's really been twisting that diamond in the light uh, to say that it's by grace we're saved. And to address then the false teaching that says Jesus saves us, but we stay saved by keeping Old Testament laws. So Jesus saves us, but we stay saved by being good. We stay saved by abhorring evil. We stay saved by keeping the Ten Commandments. That's the false teaching he's addressing because the false teachers are Jewish Christians. They believe in Jesus. They believe he died. They believe he rose again. But they believe him to be a doorway to the faith rather than the doorway and the path and the final destination. And so it's a very dangerous thing. It's hard. We've been saying throughout the series, if you're new, it's hard to kind of raise the red flag against that because a lot of times it sounds really good. Jesus is good and good works are good, right? You know, Paul's saying here is to rely on something else, even the good apart from Christ, is to neglect the whole thing. To rely on it, to require, to, to, to wrap it like a heavy yoke of, of burden around sinners' necks and to say, yeah, Jesus is, is great, but you also have to be Basically perfect morally to be saved is a false teaching that has no place in the church. And so Paul writes back in an animated way, pretty angry, to say, Christ and his grace are, are enti- the entirety of what makes us right with God, what mediates us to him. The, the thing between us and God now is Jesus alone, not the Old Testament law anymore, like it was for a time to set the stage for Christ to be the better way. And he alone serves as the essence of the New Testament, Former things, laws, pointed to him, but now they've given way to him. So, uh, so we say Jesus then is not an appendage onto the Old Testament, but rather it fulfill, he fulfills and surpasses the Old Testament. False teachers are failing to see this and imposing strict moral standards on Christians in order to keep or maintain their salvation, which again is a burden that can't truly be carried by anyone except Jesus. Think, if it helps, of Frodo in Lord of the Rings. The ring was his burden. And when people tried to steal the ring from him and take the burden away, things went south and just went to pot or to hell really quick. Jesus carries the burden of our salvation alone. Don't try to take it from him through your moral efforts. Don't take it from him through the way you think about adding to him as though it's not sufficient. When you do, the similar types of evil will befall us uh, as well. Or that's the risk anyway. So, Salvation is always Jesus' burden. Not just the beginning of our spiritual journeys, but every single day that uh, we walk, we walk in the faith and run our race. So, with that said, in this next section of Galatians, basically chapters 3 to 5, so we just finished chapter 2 last week if you weren't here, starting 3 today, he's going to continue to argue for the idea of faith or trust in God and Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of our sins over and against law. People adding laws to Christ, as, as we've been saying. So in terms of what saves us, but what keeps us saved as well. He's already been arguing for this from his own story, from interactions with other Jewish apostles, and, and now he's going to argue from the Old Testament and narratives and teachings in the Old Testament itself, which is interesting how it looks ahead in contrast with law, even there. From human analogies and examples, and from the Galatians' own story, and ultimately will show that whether it's Old Testament narrative or teaching, whether it's experience, whether it's human reason, uh, all of them serve to argue for and underline and undergird the idea that we're saved by grace every single day of our life. We don't graduate on to, to other things. So a quick word here on the idea of repetition. If at this point in uh, the book study or at any point as you read the Bible, kind of book to book, A to Z, first verse to last verse, or cover to cover, 
however you want to understand it. If you get to this point and you think, man, this seems really repetitious, doesn't it? I mean, it's basically the same thing every week. It doesn't have to be that way. And if you ever have wondered that before, if you feel that now, it's okay if you don't, but if you ever feel that, um, four quick things on what, what to kind of think or how to apply this to your heart as you think about repetition. One, at least with this, you can apply this to a lot of themes in the Bible, but especially with the theme of, of faith over and against the law in the context of, of Galatians. One, understand and remember the historical context. Lots to say about that, but just understand things are changing from old to new. God established laws in the Old Testament that Jesus is changing. He's changing the law. And especially for Jewish Christians, this is a really complicated kind of identity-shaking thing for most of them. So Jewish Christians are wrestling with this. To add on top of that, these non-Jewish people now are dining with them and being saved and given the same spirit and miracles are being done through them. And this is a very, very different type of like spirituality that they've ever had or heard of happening before. Things are happening for the better, but it's confusing to them. So understand, this is a big deal, and a lot of the New Testament, historically and theologically, is given over to explain what's going on here. Uh, we might not feel that same kind of cultural change, but understand historically, uh, for Jewish Christians especially, this was a big thing. And so the Bible is graciously shaped in a way that helps us understand this change, how Jesus is the better thing. He's not just pointing back saying, I'm this ultimate teacher pointing you back to the Old Testament saying, you know, keep going, try harder, like a, on the sidelines of a marathon, here's some water. But he's changing things to wrap now around himself and what he has to give us rather than what we have to give, have to give him. So that's the first thing. Second thing is urgency. Uh, and that is to say simply, it's important. These themes are repeated because they're important. The gospel is at stake. People's eternal destinies are at stake. And so it's classic literary device. Repetition implies importance. Three, our hearts, uh, and that is to say here, we're forgetful. Uh, we don't get it as much as we think. This is really good for all of us. Wherever we're at spiritually, you have read the Bible 50 times cover to cover, been a Christian for decades. Some of you are brand new believers, or some of you, some, most of you are in between that, that somewhere. That's fine. Wherever you're at, we, we have to fight against this temptation to think that we actually fully get it. We don't. We never will. If the gospel is God's, if the good news of Jesus Christ is his gift, if, if it's complex and beautiful and eternal and it's God's plan since the beginning of time and all that stuff and more, we shouldn't expect to kind of check it off and, and just be done. So for Paul and other authors of the Bible to, you know, repeat, and we use this phrase sometimes, a lot of times here, but twist that diamond in the light a bit to see a different facet is to remind us of things we've forgotten maybe or that we need to remember because we're forgetful people, but also to say right when we think we figured it out, to hear something a little bit differently is to say, huh, interesting. I hadn't thought about it like that before, but now I feel like I understand the argument a little bit better. So anybody arguing for anything at all in life will do this. So let's not, you know, hold standards up to the Bible that we don't kind of keep ourselves. Just kind of have that in mind as well. Fourth is, is God's design. This is probably the most important, and that is just to say he wants the repetition to be there. It's a simple thing, but just remember that. If God wrote this through the inspiration of this Apostle Paul, if it's his desire and words, then this is exactly the way he wants it to be. So if you think it's repetitious, that's okay. I do. Uh, it is. But maybe he wants us to, to see the gospel in a special repetitious light 
uh, or like uh, Spence quoted Luther last week to say, this gospel is so important that we have to continually teach it and beat it into people's heads continually. <laughs> so Luther for you. You know, probably with a beer in hand he's saying that, you know, but um, that's, but it's God's design. If we wrote it, maybe Galatians would be shorter, but it wouldn't be as good of a book because it would be less gloriously repetitious. You know, so that might be hard to feel here, and that's okay, but in your mind, this is what God wants. He wants it. He wants it to be repetitious because it's that important uh, to our own spiritual day-to-days and destinies, ultimately. So, so think about it this way. What does God want me to see in the repetition? Ask that question. Rather than, oh, it's so repetitious. Let's skip this. Think, no, what does God want me to see here? Maybe it's really, really important, more than I've ever thought. So just keep reading and keep an open ear to what God has to say to you. All right, with all that said, uh, today's title, Redemption by Way of Cursing. We'll explain that. Galatians 3, uh, a little bit later. Galatians 3, 1 to 14 is today's text. So let's read this in full to begin. You can follow along um, on screen or in, in your Bibles. Verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and his belief was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified or made right before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, does the commandments, shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. Okay, super easy to follow, right? Almost don't even have to preach it. No, we will. Here's the big question today, uh, or, or issue. The way I want to frame today is three arguments Paul makes for faith over and against the law as the way we're saved and the way we stay saved. Make sure it's not just the doorway idea, it's the, it's the pathway. What's the pathway of the Christian life? What's the pathway look like? It's what, he's, what the false teaching is saying, saying something wrong about. You know, Paul's coming in and arguing for it's always, always faith in Christ, uh, never to be added to or subtracted from or messed with in any way. So the three things here, I think, and kind of flows top to bottom, is an argument from the Galatians story, the Galatian Christian story uh, themselves, an argument from Abraham's story, we'll talk about him, and then third, an argument from an obscure verse, or kind of two, from the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament, 
uh, about being cursed when you hang on a tree. And so first, let's start with the top here. An argument first from the, the Galatians story. So Paul starts off with, oh foolish Galatians, who has, who has bewitched you? Uh, that word can be translated uh, hypnotized as well, or completely duped, uh, if that helps. But just think, who has bewitched you? Who has tricked you? We don't know if this is kind of a sad or facepalm version uh, of Paul when he's saying these things, or an angry Paul, you know, like, a, oh, Galatians, foolish. Why did you, why did you listen to these teachings, you know, like facepalm? Or is it, you fools, who has bewitched you with more, more anger, or whatever, just both of those. It's hard to know. But either way, it's exhortation and rebuke. Paul's being a pastor here. The Bible says elsewhere to pastors, be open uh, to in knowing that part of your job is to rebuke false doctrine. Not just any, everything's true about Jesus. Some people are um, succumbing, be the one that gently, gracefully, but sometimes forcefully calls out those beliefs and brings people back. In fact, actually, if you look at these three sections, I'm going to kind of go on ahead of things here for a second, but to those of you who are pastors, maybe here, elders, who will be someday, have been, even on a kind of a lay level, if you lead a community group and you consider yourself a shepherd of some kind of people, this is a great paradigm for what it means to be a pastor. Three things. One, call out false doctrine and just be clear with people what the truth is and what it isn't. So here he's exhorting, that's one. Two, in the second section, he teaches. You're a teacher of the Bible. And third, he comforts. He comforts with Christ. So exhort, teach, and comfort. Uh, and, and if that's just kind of informational for you, that's fine. That's just something. Know that here as leaders, your leaders of this church, we think about those things all the time and fail all the time, but ask for God's grace to just try to do it better with his, with his help. But anyway, it, it's cool how, this, how it flows through from top to bottom. But anyway, here he's exhorting. He goes on to say here, it was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. So he's saying, I so preached to you in the beginning that all you really saw, the essence of the gospel, was Jesus Christ on a cross dying for you among criminals. And that was enough. And so his argument's starting to take shape already, and that is Jesus' public crucifixion and the idea that we're saved and ongoingly saved or matured spiritually by good works are inconsistent. Because here he's saying, didn't you just see Jesus Christ alone on that cross with my words? Didn't I so, you know, craft it with my words and so preach the gospel alone as Christ's crucifixion to you that you saw him on that cross and he was enough? What happened? Why are you adding to that? What else could, what, what else do you need? Besides God's gift of that, the actual death of the Son of God himself, substitutionarily. And so he's already starting to shape that by that, that, that simple question. It was before, or statement, before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Who has bewitched you into thinking that that was impotent? Then he adds, great question, having begun by the Spirit... Are you now being perfected by the flesh? So when you see spirit, flesh contrasts, think when you see spirit, that's all God's work. God's spirit here is, is saving. Flesh means just our bodies or our efforts or our works. So you could plug in kind of gospel and work or grace and works there if you want instead of spirit and flesh. We'll talk more about the words later. A lot of contrasts and terms here kind of get confusing. 
But the question's great. Having begun by the Spirit, by God's work, by the gospel, are you now being perfected by the law, by your moral effort? This is really important. He's challenging the idea here that we're saved by Jesus, but are perfected, or another biblical word for that is sanctified, or made holy, or mature by the law. It's theologically inconsistent and untenable to uh, have both those kind of in the same you know, pot of beliefs, so to speak. Jesus is either everything to us or he's nothing. There's just no third ground. There's no middle ground. There's no third option. Either his, his, his death and his resurrection are everything to us, all of our nourishment, or he's nothing. You, you can't start with him and then try really hard to be good after that on your own, thinking, relying on those works then to stay in covenant with God. The false teachers were saying it. Paul's contradicting it, even from their own story. And so, before we move on, these are really important questions for us to ask as Christians, not just reading about their story, but remembering all Christians really have the same story in terms of how we started. You know, so for you Christians in the room, not all of you are Christians I know, but for those of you who are, Think about the day you first believed or the season you first believed. How did your new life in Christ begin? What were the circumstances surrounding it? Was it by works of the law or was it by faith? How did God take away your shame and guilt? How did he give you a seat at the table of God? How did he give you the hope for eternal life? Was it by you after a long season of trying really, really hard to be good that all of a sudden he let you in? Or was it simply by hearing with faith and believing? And the answer for every single Christian who's ever lived, without exception, is by faith. It's never by works of blood. That's what, if, if it is, his argument makes no sense here. The rhetoricals make no sense. Is it by works of the law or by faith? The answer is by hearing with faith. We heard about Jesus. We placed our trust, placed our trust in him. If we believe that we'd, we've saved ourselves or ultimately we're the ones that have found God or we began our spiritual journey with personal holiness, maybe we aren't Christians at all. Then his flow of logic is this. If we began with grace, why aren't we continuing? And so I think the, the challenging question here for us and wherever you guys are, some of you are, are fully on board with this and it's a, just by way of reminder, let me encourage you. Some of you don't believe this. This is just brand new theology to you as well, maybe a third camp. But here's the question. Are you prepared, are you willing to make Jesus' public crucifixion enough every day of your life? Or are you going to graduate onto other spiritual things in order to keep your salvation? Are you prepared and willing to make Jesus' public crucifixion enough every day of your life, or are you going to graduate onto other spiritual things in order to keep your salvation? Or, or think about it this way. When you think about what Jesus was like before you on the day you first believed, how he had open arms of love, stretched wide on that cross actually, bleeding for you in love, substituting himself for you, when you, when you think about how much grace was there that first day, is that what you think about every day when you think about him? Or does he change into a benevolent boss? Or an angry judge? Or one who kind of tolerates you? Or one who reassigns laws for you to keep because his, his blood isn't quite a, um, sufficient enough? 
If it's the latter, the invitation here for you is come back. There's a much better way, a much better way of thinking about the gospel. And to underline that more, he moves on to this second argument, which is kind of the same thing, but it's an argument from Abraham's story. So let me jump in mid-sentence here and, and read this again. By faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, righteousness meaning perfection or holiness or, or purity, being restored to right relationship with God. Verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify or, or make right before God, the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. This is 2,000 years before Christ. Preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. All right, so this is uh, wonderfully written. It's so rich and good. There's so much we could say here about Abraham. Uh, if, you, if you've never read about him, you can go back to Genesis, starting in chapter 12, and kind of read onwards uh, until you get to the narrative of his death a little bit later in, in Genesis. Um, what Paul is doing here is he's using the story of, of Abraham. The first book of the Bible, way back at the beginning, after sin comes into the world and corrupts everything, but God stays committed. And one of the first key things he does is he covenants relationally with this man, Abraham. And so what he's saying here then is by going back to this is, in the beginning after sin came into the world, when God did that covenanting relationally with this guy, Abraham, to, in order to ultimately bring blessing and salvation through him to the world, that's a look ahead to Jesus because Jesus came in his line, it was Abraham's belief and his faith that was counted to him by God as righteousness. In other words, he wasn't righteous. And actually, when he quotes Habakkuk 2.4 here, I don't mention the, the reference, but when it says, when he quotes in this passage, the righteous shall live by faith, that's a great key to understanding. When people are called righteous in the Bible anywhere, use that decoder verse, essentially. Kind of place it like that red filter thing on the back of the cereal box over the story and say, well, if he's righteous, he must have lived by faith. It's impossible to be righteous if you don't have faith because the righteous live by faith. So Abraham was not a good, if you know the story, you know that when he was called by God and God found him, he was, he was in the act of worshiping other gods. You know, far off from God's land and further from God himself and God interrupted his idolatry, interrupted his sin and he called him to himself in spite of his wickedness. And he says, now you're my son, you're my child. I'm covenanting with you based on what I have to give you versus what you have to give me. So he's not righteous. It was rather, what's this say? His faith that was counted to him as righteousness. So when God looks at someone with faith or trust or belief in God for the forgiveness of their sins, he looks at that faith and says, I'm crediting that to you. I'm counting that as a type of righteousness. So he's looking way back. It's interesting, the beginning of the Bible to argue this. This is not something that came into history through Christ, but something God always planned through the mess and the convoluted nature of Israel's story and how there were laws added for a time to show how bad people were, but then to pass that up through Christ. And it was always Old and New Testament. That's not a new thing with Jesus, but something that's kind of heightened, though, and it's for the world through him. But with Abraham, it was by faith there as well. Which is why, interestingly enough, Paul says, this is a really important phrase for 
our understanding of the Bible. The gospel beforehand. So Paul is saying the gospel, the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection, that it's by faith, not by works, was wrapped up ahead of time, kind of prophetically or in a foreshadowing manner through Abraham. God, it says here, foreseen he would justify the Gentiles by faith, acknowledged Abraham's faith as the thing that would constitute who Abraham's true children were. And so Abraham's children are not his physical bloodline that constitutes the saved, though Christ comes through his line, but rather it's his spiritual bloodline of sorts. Those who keep with his example of faith in God, faith in God to come through on his promise to save alone, aside from works. That's what it means to be a part of God's family. This is one of those things I mentioned before, the changes that were happening. A harder thing for a Jewish Christian and just Jews in general. When Jesus was teaching about this, he was making qualitative changes or, or maybe clarifications in, so, in some sense. Where the Jews were saying, we are sons of Abraham because we're children bloodline-wise of his line. We're, we're fine. And Jesus says, actually, you're not. You're enslaved to something more. You're enslaved to sin. To be a child of Abraham is to have faith like he did. The forerunning thing Abraham did, that's one of the most important things to know about Abraham, is he was a man of trust, deep-seated trust in God. Not himself, not his works. And so you kind of pay that forward or fast forward that throughout the Old Testament, it's a repeated theme. And then we get to Christ and it like explodes into a brush fire for the world. Those who are part of God's family, one of Abraham's seed. We'll read more about this in, in Galatians in coming weeks. One of Abraham's children, one who once were blessed, the Bible says, is to be people of faith in God. And so here in verse uh, 9 at the end there, notice the tense. It's not just those who were of faith at their conversion, but it's present tense. Those who are of faith, speaking this to Christians, who are of faith presently are saved. To be a child of Abraham again is to be a person of belief in God, particularly Jesus Christ in this era for the forgiveness of our sins, but every day of our lives and to not revert to works. Abraham, one of the things Paul is going to mention next week, so I'll give this to you as a teaser, I guess. We'll look more, about, look more into it, but he's going to argue from chronology. He's going to say the law of the Old Testament didn't come in for hundreds of years after Abraham lived. So it can't be by the law that we're saved. It wasn't even there. Things were totally fine between Abraham and God simply by faith without law. Crazy. And good news for us. Things are okay with you guys and God simply by God. Simply by him being at work in your life. Simply by him drawing near through his son. Simply by Christ. That's one of the examples we get. Arguments from chronology. The law came later. So if you're wondering then, why did God add the law at all? That's a great question, and that's next week. So we won't talk about it this week. But we'll talk about that more. But Paul brings it up. He says, some of you right now are thinking, well, I get that, but why add the Ten Commandments at all? Why add the laws to Israel at all? Why, why kind of covenant with them a little bit on that level? And uh, we'll talk, <clears throat> we'll answer that question more uh, next, next week. But for today, Abraham didn't revert to works. If he did, and he actually did do this in his story, but God didn't, God didn't condone it. He didn't endorse it. When he did it, God corrected him. He brought him back to the, saying, it's my promise to save you 
My promise to bring life from death. My promise to raise you from the dead. I will do it. Don't try to bring that into the world yourself. I will do it. And, and so Abraham does that, but it's never like this condoned thing from God saying, oh, all of a sudden it's about works now. It's through and through always about, about faith. Okay. Third thing. An argument from an obscure verse or two from Deuteronomy. Let's read this again and kind of hang tight. There's a lot going on here. A lot of back and forth. Picture like you're at a tennis match or something, going back and forth between things. We'll, we'll talk about this. The first three verses to begin, verses 10 to 12. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. They're different. Rather, speaking of the law, the one who does them shall live by them. So again, a lot going on here, but basically he's, he's still arguing for the same principle, but in more rapid fire, uh, in more rapid fire way. Going back and forth between the contrasts of faith and law, blessing and curse. So he's already said those who live by faith are blessed, along with Abraham. Now he's saying all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. So, so blessing, curse, faith, law, they're, they're different. For, and then he argues, he grounds this with the four, then he quotes from Deuteronomy 27, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law of the Old Testament, and this is key, and do them. Note the all things there. It's really important. Those who seek to be saved on any level by doing good things need to abide by all aspects of it perfectly. You guys catch that? All things, and they need to be done. And so this is important because all of us natural-born moralists, you know, we, we need to hear this, and we, what we tend to do is measure ourselves moralistically against what we're really good at. And on the curve, and looking down on people who are behind us in some moralistic thing, so whatever that is. Maybe you think you're, you're a... A volunteerist, you really think you're blessing this city by volunteering on all these different organizations, and that's great. Uh, but that's, that's your standard of righteousness. Or maybe it's, lying's not really my vice. You know, it's other things, but it, I'm pretty good at that. What we tend to do is pick out some things we're good at and measure ourselves against those who are worse, you know, or in line with what we're already kind of keeping, keeping up with. Does that make sense, moralistically? But what this, this, this really flies in the face of that. Paul comes at that and says, if you're, if you're seeking to justify, your, make yourself right before God through doing good and abstaining from evil, you have to do everything in the Old Testament perfectly. You can't just pick and choose what your standard of righteousness is and feel good about yourself that way. If, if you're seeking that, and, and he's not saying you should, but if you're seeking that, that's, kinda, that's the way you're thinking. You have to do, this, he's quoting the Old Testament. Everyone who doesn't do all things in the book of the law, all things perfectly, all things rightly, and do them are cursed. Cursed means judged or to be in a a state of being um, separated from God. And blessing is the opposite. Blessing means to be saved or close to God, not happy. If you ever heard that definition, it's incomplete because blessed people are unhappy sometimes, so it's not not helpful. Blessed means close to God or, or saved. So he goes back and forth here. 
Knoweth thee all things. Then he goes back and he, he highlights the curse. Then he goes back to faith again. In quoting Habakkuk 2.4, the righteous shall live by faith. Then he goes back to law again. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them, the word does, does them shall live by them. Which quotes from Leviticus 18.5. And so there's another contrast here being set up as well between doing and believing. So when he says the law is not of faith, you can't blend them, they're different. Uh, faith is about believing, trusting in God and, and receiving his gift. The law is about doing. Doing and believing are contrasted. They're not in the same, the same pot. So if it helps to see a chart, um, on the left, there, uh, there's this Old Testament way that's given way to this New Testament, New Testament way. Paul's contrasting law and faith Doing and believing, flesh and spirit, and ultimately those things on the left lead to a curse versus the things on the right lead to being saved or blessed. So maybe you can follow that. You've been following that, and that's great. But if that's been hard to understand the use of terms, those are the four contrasts that are basically saying the same thing. When it's God's spirit, it's him doing everything. Flesh, us doing everything. Doing versus just resting and believing. He's done everything. Cursed and blessed, and then law, law and faith. Um, those are the columns he's lining these truths up into and, and urging that Christians who have, you know, been over here for months and months and months are going back here. And he's saying, what are you thinking? Who's bewitched you? Who's cursed your mind? Who's tricked you and duped you? The whole point of biblical history is to show how this wasn't working to get us here. And now by believing you have to do things to be saved, other than to believe in the gospel, is to go back to this way of, way of thinking. It's to bring yourself back under, under a curse. All right, then there's a twist in the pattern. Because, see, the, the point here is not just for Paul to contrast the principles. This, isn't, this is great, but he doesn't stop here. If we stop here, we're missing the whole gospel. Paul's point, and we'll keep reading here in a second, is to say we're saved by faith in something, or rather someone. Or, or think of it this way. The Bible says here we're all under a curse. So this is not just a matter of holding out two choices to people and saying, you know, pick which way you want, the faith way or the law way, the, the spirit way or the flesh way, the cursed way or, or, the, or the blessed way. And then kind of saying to people or implying that until you choose, you're in some kind of neutral limbo state, kind of behind the two. It's not saying that. Rather, it's more declaring we're all under a curse. Whether we think of ourselves as relying on the law or not, whether we feel like we're cursed or not, this is declaring we're all cursed because we're all under our sin. And we live in a state of rebellion against God. It's something the law actually helps to expose that, because it can't be kept. It shows our inner problem, and it drives us in this fashion ahead to a greater solution. So the answer then to the problem is what he says next. It can't be us, right? Because the law can't be kept. It's what he's saying here is he presupposes it can't be kept. Otherwise, he'd say, he wouldn't quote Deuteronomy 27, you know, and say, those who want to be justified by the law must keep all of them. He's presupposing, it's, it's obvious in the white space, he's saying, no one can, no one can. So it can't be us. The, the solution to the problem of sin 
and shame and guilt and being separated from God and having no hope except death in this life. That can't be solved by us because what we do, in other words, laws, uh, can't be kept perfectly. And those who rely on it are, are cursed anyway. The answer is found in the first three words of verse 13. It's this whole paragraph. Let me read it. But the first three words, Christ redeemed us. This is the trajectory. Christ redeemed us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to non-Jews as well, to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Christ redeemed us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by, how did he do it? By becoming a curse for us. And it's interesting, he quotes this, this is the obscure verse in Deuteronomy, in case that wasn't clear. He quotes from Deuteronomy this passing kind of law-like proverb or, or mentioning of what it means to be cursed is when you're hanged on a tree. You know, it's like Israelites are probably standing far away from trees just in case or something, right? You know, like I don't want to, but that's, that's unclear, shadowy, cryptic, a mystery in the Old Testament, now made clear by Christ, who makes all things clear, solves all mysteries, interprets all dreams, fulfills all the Old Testament. Paul saying that was there because of him and for the sake of our Savior who would come and who would enter into our cursed existence for us. Isn't that amazing that God is like that, you guys? He's not a God who can't empathize. He can. He's been cursed more than you ever have. He's been mocked more than you ever have. He's gone through more pain than you ever have or ever will. He's been separated from God more than you ever have. I mean, he, he entered into hell. He suffered for us that we might not be cursed anymore. It's the great substitution, or as Spence was talking about last week, as some theologians have called it, the great exchange where Christ gets our cursing and we get his blessed existence as the Son of God. We share in it because he became a human. Though he's perfect, he died for us. He, he bore the burden of what it cost to save sinful, wretched, wicked, misguided, and worse than that, dead human beings by being crucified in the manner that he was. And so you see how he drills into the cross here. This is really, again, I can't emphasize this enough, how the argument ends here, and he's going to continue, of course, but it's not just a sharing of principles, faith and law. That's good to understand the contrast for sure, but only in as much as it leads to Christ. And so he ends this way. See how that's the goal? How even when we talk about the theme of cursing biblically, it was about Jesus. When that idea of cursing on the tree comes up, it was ultimately about him. When other cursed type things happen in the Old Testament, it's a type of shadow of Christ who would come to be the ultimate cursed one for our existence. Crazy, hard to fathom. Talk about a, a dramatic twist, an, an ironic twist in the story. But God's a great storyteller. You see how this is not a, a, about a vague sense of faith in God. Uh, throughout this series, we've been trying to kind of poke at false gospels a bit or at least misleading teachings to um, try to get all the more practical, I guess, about that. And, and one of them today is 
this vague notion of faith that can be in the church as well, especially outside, that faith is just simply believing God exists. So if this vague notion of faith, uh, even contrasting with law, which it should be, this vague notion of faith, if all that means to you is you believe God exists, well, that's great, but so do the demons. Demons believe God exists. This is an argument from James chapter 2, by the way, elsewhere in the Bible. What makes you different from demons? See, it has to, his argument there, James's argument, is it has to be more. Faith is not just ascription to some idea. It's placing our, it's going all in. It's putting all our eggs in the one basket of Christ. It's trusting personally that when he died, he died for, for me, for us, for his church, for his people. And so the answer is we have to have a particular faith in Jesus Christ. Guys, when you talk about the gospel, get particular. Don't be vague. Jesus wasn't vague. Paul wasn't vague. He was very particular and specific. What saves you is not, you know, some apologetic argument about the existence of God. That's great if you have that. Good. But it's way, if that's not, the demons have that. Better than you do. They believe in God more than you do most, than I do most days. Our, the answer is our particular faith in Jesus Christ as a God-man, a human being who died for our sins. The demons don't believe that or trust in that. Jesus didn't become a, 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 a demon or a fallen angel to save angels. He became human. So we have a particular, specific faith in Jesus Christ and his substitutionary, curse-filled death for us. And so... When, when you think of him, you think more of more than a concept, but you think of the blood pouring from his wounds for you. You think, Christian, of him being spit on for you. Maybe you think of the crown of thorns, how he was mocked and put to open shame. His nakedness was shown. You think of how he was slashed open in his back for you, exposing some of his in, internal organs. You think about him being beat to a bloody pulp so that he was unrecognizable by bystanders for you and me. All in love. See, we're faced with, with, with this kind of Christ, faced with this kind of gospel, faced with this kind of Savior. All of a sudden, we start to let go of our trophies. We let go of our crowns. We let go of our accomplishments, our own preset standard of righteousness. And we bend the knee to him who gave himself in this manner for us. And when you do that, you shed the curse of the unkeepable law and you rest in the blessing of God's salvation, thinking, did the law ever love me like this? And so you make Jesus' horrible but beautiful crucifixion the center of your faith every day until you die or until he comes back again. That's what you and I do as Christians, or if you don't, this is an invitation to start thinking that way. He, there, replaces the law. This is more beautiful. This is more powerful. This is what God thinks of you. This is not a benevolent boss. This is a savior. The Bible says elsewhere, do you not know? Have you not heard? Listen to him. You know, when Jesus is transfigured in that 
part of the Gospels, if you know the story, and Moses is there, Moses' ghost or spirit and Elijah's, who disappears and who stays? Moses and Elijah disappear. It's only Jesus standing there again. Moses, who represents the law, disappears. Elijah, who represents the prophets, disappears. The Old Testament disappears in, in the wake of Christ. And then God says what? This is my son. Listen to him. Listen to that more than the law. Listen to him. What does he have to say? What did he say on the cross? How did he affirm his sacrificial love for us? If we can memorize the Ten Commandments but are clueless to the gospel, what good is that? This is what Paul's getting at. They're going back to shadows and imperfections and death-cursed-filled covenants and understandings of how we connect with God. And they're leaving him. Why did he go through that if there was another way? Right? These are the questions that are chock full in, in Galatians. Why did God suffer this way if there is another way? And so, the, the, the issue at the end, to go back to verse 1, do not be bewitched. Don't be duped. Uh, have, having, this is the question I love too, uh, having begun by the Spirit, having begun by the Gospel, are you now being perfected by works? Is that where you're at? And if you are, uh, welcome to the club. That's like Hiawatha's subtitle, you know, because we're all moralists, you know. We preach the opposite every Sunday, but that's where we're all at in our heart. The point is, where do you go? Where do you go when you realize that? You know, run to Christ, run back. As for the Galatians, Paul didn't say, you're instantly not Christians because you're thinking this. He's saying just, Correct your way of thinking. The, the, the true gospel has always been proclaimed amidst a sea of other false gospels. Always. For the past 2,000 years, this has happened. We see it right here in Galatians. There's a sea of false, kind of sounds good, but it's not really true, gospels. And the true gospel is being, being preached. You know, and today it's worse because of social media. You know, and, and everyone with a pulse and an opinion can theologize people. Yikes. You know, that's, like, that's an opportunity maybe for the church for more gospel to get out there digitally. Praise God. That's also a huge threat, you guys. Huge threat. Way more than you realize to us. How do you know what the true gospel is? Good question, right? How do we know? How do we know what it isn't? Are we equipped yet to know? These Christians had been completely and totally duped. And they didn't realize it. So how do you know if you're in the same pool, you know? And one of the answers to that is you go to the Bible. You know it fluently. You know, you know what the Bible exposes as false gospels because that's going to happen. You know, and, and every day we probably, I mean, I think every day, this might sound over the top, but it's not. You should expect almost every day to be exposed to a false gospel that says Jesus is good but you also need to be good to keep your salvation. You, you've probably heard that a thousand times in your life. You may have realized it, about 50 of those. That's the danger. Unless we're in a community, you guys, where I'm not going to see things clearly all the time, you're not, your friends will when you don't. If you're alone in the faith, you don't stand a chance. Not a chance. Because we, we need to hear God speak to us. 
through his word, and we need to see him in the people of God and have their help. So immerse yourselves in the life of the church. Befriend people who are different from you, are also alike you. Know them well, and they can know you well. And so unless we're in a context where people, I mean, Paul here is calling people back, even with hard words sometimes. Is that where, you know, you're at here or another church here that you call home if you're visiting? This is why we need the church. And so we close with a few thoughts here. This is what it says. With all of that said, don't be bewitched. Don't seek to take away the ring from Frodo, so to speak. It's Jesus' burden to bear, not yours. So cast your anxieties, your fears, your sins, your doubts, your disbeliefs, all of that on him. Look to him, follow him, and, and draw power from his spirit and rest in his grace. These are the invitations of Galatians 3 and the whole of the Bible. And then here's some things you can do. Uh, Pray for our church. Please pray for us. Pray for your leaders. Pray for your friends. Pray for yourself against being hypnotized and bewitched and becoming fools by rejecting Christ alone. Pray against that. And then love your church and your neighbors. Love them with a love that resembles Christ's, that they might know that we are his children and that they too can be if they bring everything to Jesus and believe that he is sufficient. Like Abraham did, like Paul did, like the true church has done for 2,000 years, and like by God's grace we do. Let's pray. God, thank you uh, so much, Father, for this uh, word. Galatians 3, for the gospel. Thank you, Jesus, for becoming cursed to lift the curse from us. Classic textbook substitution, a definition of what the atonement truly is. Uh, Father, we ask for our church that you protect us, God, from, and save us not just from bad things, but from doing good apart from you that can so easily dilute and make impotent what you did for us on the cross. Forgive us our self-man-made uh, levels or uh, standards of righteousness, preset standards of righteousness that are void of Christ. Uh, God, save us on the cross today, uh, back when we were saved, if we're saved in the room today, ongoingly throughout our life, and be the final thing we're thinking about on our deathbed is Jesus alone. Not what we've done, not our resumes. It doesn't matter. It's, Paul says, rubbish compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've I've lost all things, for whose sake I suffer, but for the sake of attaining eternal life, uh, life from the dead, we believe in the gospel, his righteousness that came down from heaven, not ours that pours forth from our skeletal, sin-sick souls that have nothing to give except to receive from you who loves us and who gave himself for us. Praise be to God. Help us to worship now and leave in peace. In Christ's name, amen.